Hey there, everyone, and welcome once again to our Midweek Bible Study 2022 Almost Summer Edition. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it is a joy to be with you. Thanks for taking time to join me. It's Wednesday, May 25th. Now we're continuing our study of Philippians. We've only got one more to go after this, so today is session six, and we're going to be looking at Philippians 3, verses 1 to 21 as our text. Last week we looked at how the Philippians were to shine like the stars in a world full of crooked and perverse people. We also saw Paul show personal concern for the Philippians by sending them Timothy as a pastor and a teacher. Today we're going to see what Paul says about not resting on our laurels, but pressing on to be like Christ. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but right now join me in an opening word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have today to study your word. Thanks for all that have come to join as well. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and that we would be doers of this word. In your holy name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. You know, it's always a great feeling to achieve a goal or receive an honor. Paul considered the greatest goal of his life to be, as verse 14 of our text says, the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. So let me ask you some questions about goals and honors. First up, question one. What prizes or honors did you wish you could have won in high school? Maybe most likely to succeed? How about homecoming king or queen? Maybe most valuable player? Or class president? Maybe valedictorian. What prizes or honors did you wish you could have won in high school? Actually, for me, I didn't wish for any of those in high school. I'm not sure why. I probably couldn't have attained any of them, but I did have the honor of playing varsity golf for three years. We had a three-year high school, and I had a privilege of, as a freshman, being on the team, and I just wanted to be the best golfer I could for the team and contribute however I could, and I was grateful for that chance. Question two, what prize or honor are you most proud of receiving as an adult? Well, besides being a husband, a dad, and a granddad, the honor I'm most proud of as an adult is serving as an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is just an incredible privilege and honor, and one that I'm grateful for. Our last opening question, number three, what possession do you have that you would give up everything else to retain, and what makes this so valuable to you? Well, in the sense of possession, not as in owning something, but my wife, clearly. She is, next to the Lord, she's everything to me, and I would just not want to live life without her. All right, are you ready to dive in a little more? Let's do it. Having written about his past and present, as well as his relationship to the Philippians, Paul now looks at where he is going. Now, he's not one to stand pat or rest on his laurels, in other words, what he had accomplished. He was also looking to do more. For him, that meant setting aside everything else so that he might reach his goal of being like Christ. That is the spirit Paul had and the spirit he sought to engender in others. So let's read our scripture for today. Philippians 3, 1 to 21. And while we're reading, note the results of focusing on earthly things rather than spiritual things. Here we go. Starting with verse 1. Get your Bible or Bible apps out and let's go. Philippians 3, 1 to 21. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. 
For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, who demand the strict disobedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Jesus Christ first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Amen to that. All right, let's dive in. Here's our study questions. Starting out, number one, take a look at verse two. Verse two says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. The question is, what does Paul mean when he calls these people dogs? And are there dogs in your life you have to watch out for? Paul warned the believers to watch out for a particular group of people he described using three derogatory terms. The first term is dogs. Do you see that there? Dogs were regarded by Jews as despised and unclean creatures. It was common for Orthodox Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. However, here, Paul switched the designation to refer not to Gentiles, but to an extreme faction of Jews. The next term is evil people. The Jews regarded themselves as holy, not evil, because they kept the law. But their reliance on the law lessened their reliance on God. Does that make sense? And lastly, he called them mutilators. 
Some Jewish Christians wrongly believed that it was essential for Gentiles to follow all the Old Testament Jewish laws, saying that the Gentile believers had to be circumcised to be saved. Those who taught this wrong doctrine were called Judaizers. They were a severe problem for Paul. The Judaizers' main argument was that Gentiles had to first become Jews before they could become Christians. For me, I need to watch out for other religious leaders and scholars who do the same thing as the Judaizers, and I need not to become enticed by their false teaching. Question 2. What would you say are the grounds for confidence in yourself? Would you say it's the talents God has given you? Maybe your history of success? Maybe your good looks? Or your experience that God has always been with you? Or maybe... What confidence in myself? You know, I really struggle with this issue. I usually don't feel particularly confident about anything, but I realize that I do have some talents that God has given me for which I am very thankful. But my confidence is not based solely on that. It is more the daily recognition that God is always with me. Number three, take a look at verses four through six. They say, Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Question. What were the traits or experiences that Paul put his confidence in prior to his conversion? Prior to his conversion, Paul put confidence in his own efforts, including his superior bloodline and his lineage. I'm sure you caught that in the early verses here. He also prided himself as being trained as a real Hebrew and as a highly zealous Pharisee. So it makes me think of another question. Why did Paul put his confidence in those things? Why do we put our confidence in things like that? Well, he didn't know any better. From his home life to his surroundings, it was clear he was groomed to be the best Jewish leader he could be, and nothing was going to stand in his way. Sometimes that's how it is for us, too. Let's move on to question four. In verses four through eight, Paul talks about his profit and loss accounting type system. How does Paul ultimately figure the worth of his religious credentials. Paul had once thought those great qualifications were so really important for salvation, but now he considered them worthless. All the qualifications no longer mattered because of what was done. Paul had learned that nothing he could do could earn him salvation. All his hard work and meticulous law-keeping and zeal for the Jewish faith had gained him nothing. Doubtless Paul's meeting with Christ on the road to Damascus had sealed the change with him. When Paul understood this priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ, his accomplishments became nothing more than garbage by comparison. Number five, question. What was Paul trying to forget, and what was he trying to keep his life focused on? And also, what was the ultimate goal of those efforts, and why was forgetting the past important in that regard? Well, first of all, looking carefully at his life and all he experienced, Paul came to the conclusion that he had a long way to go in his spiritual journey. He realized that he had to forget his past to stop looking at it. Neither guilt 
nor personal attainment would assist him in gaining Christ. And second, Paul's ultimate goal was to be like Christ, even sharing in Christ's death so that he could experience being resurrected from the dead. To achieve this, he had no choice but to look forward because when he looked back, it set him back. How true that is for so many of us. Number six, look at verse 10a, the first part of verse 10. It says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So the question is, what is Paul saying in this part of verse 10? Well, the word know, K-N-O-W, is the same form used in verse 8, referring to personal experiential knowledge. To know Christ is more than merely to know facts and doctrine about him. It should be the goal of every believer to know Christ more fully and personally, and that can be a lifelong process. Paul also wanted to know about and experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead is available to all believers to raise them from spiritual death now, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and from their physical death in the future, Romans 8, 11. Paul wanted to know this power personally and experientially for the power assures Christians of their justification, Romans 4, 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and of their regeneration as they identify with Christ in resurrection. Romans 6, 4, Colossians 2, 12, Colossians 3, verse 1 and 10. Number seven. Then in verses 10b through 11, Paul says, I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. The question is here simply, what does Paul mean in these verses? It can be kind of confusing if you're not sure just got to take some time and look. Now, Paul's not referring to sharing Christ's death on the cross. That's clear right off the bat. But Paul wanted to participate with Christ as a believer in suffering for the gospel. Go back to chapter 1, verse 29. Even as Paul had already suffered greatly for the gospel and was suffering in prison at the writing of this letter, he still wanted to know firsthand what it meant to suffer for Christ. He was willing to experience more in order to serve Christ, who had suffered so much for him. Colossians 1.24. Believers share his death as they die to sin and to the old nature. In a transaction we cannot completely understand, when Jesus died on the cross, we died to our former life. Christ took our punishment on himself, so God looks at us as though we have died to sin and then been raised along with Christ in newness of life. And then in verse 11, Paul wrote he wanted to experience the resurrection from the dead. He's not implying uncertainty or doubt that he would be resurrected. Rather, this was a way of humbly stating that he trusted in God for his complete salvation from regeneration to resurrection. Paul didn't doubt the fact that he would be raised, but how he would experience the resurrection was within God's plan and power and not his own. Confident of God's care and blessing, Paul runs toward salvation as if he's in a marathon. He wanted to finish without quitting. Paul was not making a point about eternal security in his wording. Instead, he was announcing his dramatic and full commitment to persevere in the foot race of spirituality, never giving up until the finish line where Jesus stands ready with a crown. Really inspiring stuff. Number eight, question. Consider verses 12 to 14. If you compared your spiritual life right now to a track race, where would you be in that race right now? Boy, that gets to the point, doesn't it? I feel like I've left the starting blocks. 
and I'm on my way. I mean, it's not a sprint, but a marathon. So it's going to take a while. And I need to work on that more. There's also been times when I've had bursts of speed and things were going right along. I feel like I'm on the lead lap, but not in the lead group. You know, I feel like I'm towards the back end of that lead lap. I just need to keep striving for more. And that's something that I work on every day. I hope the same for you too. Number nine, question. Of the directions in this chapter, which do you need to take to heart in order to run a better race? Maybe it's in verse two to get the dogs to stop harassing you. Or maybe in verses four and five to stop putting your confidence in worldly status. Or verse seven, get your priorities straight and count lesser things as loss. Maybe it's verse 10, be willing to suffer a little. Or maybe verse 13, forget your past mistakes. Also in verse 13, forget your past successes. Or perhaps it's in verse 14, focus only on the goal of Christ. Well, for me, it's all of those above. The dogs will stop harassing me when I stop putting confidence in my status. And I'll stop putting confidence in my status when I get my priorities straight, because then all the other stuff will be counted as loss. And through this, I need to be willing to suffer at times, knowing that God uses that to help build my character and perseverance. I also need to forgive myself for past mistakes, as well as my pride in accomplishments. Ultimately, the goal is focusing on Christ right here and right now. And so all I have to do is grab it. Number 10, verse 16 reads, But we must hold on to the progress we've already made. The question is, what does this verse mean and why is it important? Again, verse 16 says, but we must hold on to the progress we've already made. I think about Christian maturity in this answer because it involves acting on the guidance that we've already received. The believers were in different stages, but everyone needed to obey the truth they had already learned. As they pressed on toward the goal, they should not use their lack of of complete knowledge as an excuse for taking lightly what they knew or for getting sidetracked. They should continue to learn and grow while at the same time governing their lives by the light they had already received. Number 11. Take a look at verse 17. It reads, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now, the question is, what two words does Paul use in this verse for discipleship? Did you find them? I'll bet you did. Let's go over them together. The two words are pattern and example. Paul challenges the Philippians to pursue Christ's likeness by following Paul's own example and the example of others whose lives are based on his. In other words, those mature believers in chapter 3, verse 15. This was not egotism on Paul's part, for Paul always focused on Christ and urged the believers to also follow the example of others to follow Christ. They should not follow false teachers or enemies of the cross. Instead, Paul focused his life on being like Christ, and he's saying they should too. The Gospels may not yet have been in circulation, so Paul could not tell them to read the Bible and to see what Christ was like. Therefore, he urged them to imitate him as a practical guide for conduct. That Paul could tell people to follow his example is a testimony to his character. Could you do the same? Could I do the same? What kind of follower would a new Christian become if he or she imitated you? Next, number 12, question. Verse 18 
talks about enemies of the cross. In verse 19, Paul shares that there are four characteristics of those people. What are they? Well, let's take a look at the verse 19. It says, they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think about only this life here on earth. So let's answer that question. First, they're headed for destruction. Do you see that phrase? Because they refuse to accept Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, they could not be saved. Their only alternative was eternal destruction or separation from God. Secondly, their God is their appetite. Do you see that portion of the phrase? This means they worshiped those temporal elements that satisfy only physical desires. Thirdly, they brag about shameful things. In other words, they gloried in themselves when they should have been ashamed so that they could turn to God for salvation. And fourthly, they think only about this life here on earth. Do you see that? In other words, they depended on credentials and accomplishments, law keeping, etc. for salvation. And now the last question for today is number 13. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says that believers are to act differently, with a different focus and expectation. Would you explain that, please? My answer is, while the false teachers have their minds on earthly matters, believers ought to be yearning for their home. Paul's speaking of being citizens of heaven struck a chord with the Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony. Those who lived in Philippi had their citizenship in far-off Rome. Although most of the Philippians had never been there, Roman citizenship was highly prized during Paul's time. The Christians in Philippi, as proud as they had been of their Roman citizenship, you can read about that in Acts 16, verses 20 and 21, should have valued even more highly their citizenship in heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, as the verse says. These believers should have thought of themselves as resident aliens, living temporarily in a foreign country with their home elsewhere. One day, they would experience all the special privileges of their heavenly citizenship because Christ would return as their Savior. Well, let me recap for you what we've talked about because we've come to the end of our study today. We considered the race we run as Christians and what it means to put everything else aside in order to reach the goal of becoming more and more like Christ. Next time will be our last study in this journey of Philippians. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 23, and we'll refocus on the reasons that we can rejoice in all circumstances. And I'll also have some exciting news about the following study right after this one is completed. So stay tuned next week, and we'll be right back. Thanks for taking time to join us today. I really appreciate that. I hope to see you soon. Take care. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.